My name is Sophie Tolhurst and I'm the assistant editor of FX magazine. This is Talking Spaces, FX's new podcast series. FX magazine covers interior design and architecture, focusing on the contract design industry. We speak to those who design the spaces and places in which we spend our lives. The offices, schools, hospitals, shops and more. We're interested in all that goes into designing those spaces and want to talk about it. This second episode, like the first, was made during the COVID-19 pandemic. With lockdowns and restrictions on travel for people all over the world, we've decided to use this episode, titled Close to Home, to consider the local. What is nearby varies depending on where you live, and relying on your immediate environment will have meant an increased awareness of it. Awareness of who your neighbours are, of the local businesses around, of public spaces open to you, and the proximity of local resources. Later on in the podcast, I'll be speaking to architects Sarah Featherstone and Petra Marco of VeloCity, a team of industry experts working to tackle the critical issues facing the countryside, looking at how developing rural areas in the right way can allow their inhabitants to get more from and contribute to the health of their local area, while protecting villages and the countryside around them. But in the first half, I start a little closer to my own home. I'm speaking to Maria Chung, a director and head of interior design at award-winning architecture and design practice Squire & Partners, about the hyper-local. Maria's experience spans workspace, residential and hotel developments, and extends to bespoke installations and products, retail displays and exhibition design. But today we're speaking about designing a hyper-local workspace. The practice is venturing into this area with its new project, the department store studios but it builds on a relationship already established between its Brixton-based office, called the Department Store, and the local area. Here's Maria, speaking from Brixton. Hi Maria, thanks for coming to talk to me. Thank you Sophie, it's very nice to meet you over the over a phone call. <laughs> yes, sadly we're not in the same room right now. I understand you're speaking to me from your Brixton office? I am indeed. I'm actually currently sitting in our office in the Annex um, uh, meeting room and actually overlooking our department store studio building site at the moment. But it's actually it's rather nice because it's, 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 um, the sun is lighting over the CLT structure and it's looking really beautiful. So you're super local right now. Could you tell me a bit about the hyperlocal as Squire and Partners understands it and how you design for that? What we understand hyperlocal to mean is actually being able to live your life in in a close distance where your work, your home, the places you socialise, places you learn, places you rest are all within a close distance. What we have done here in the department store is really recognising that the locality of where we are, we, we came in at um, to Brixton, which is already a thriving community, and we really wanted to make sure that whatever we brought to it just added to that community. And so we spent a lot of time at the beginning, before we even started any building works, working with um, the Brixton bid to see what there is in the local community, being part of design festivals. So you moved to the area in 2017 as a company? That's right. And um, but probably two and a half years before then, we were already um, engaging with the local community. So, for instance, when we had our um, when our building was um, boarded up, when we knew we were going to start demolition work to some of the internal areas, we kind of like worked with the local design festival to kind of use the 
the the kind of the hoarding of our of our building to kind of create these um, spaces for local artists and we kind of supported them through allowing them the space to put up their artwork we had these kind of eight by four sheets that they can produce artwork on and then that was displayed for the duration of the festivals and we also put in touch with people kind of suppliers of ours who could who could sponsor materials for the artwork so there was one artist that we put in touch with our um, um, supplier Domus who supplied all the tiles for this piece of work called Juan is Dead it's kind of like these beautiful mosaic tiles um, made through and we kind of then also added our own layer through some of the mouldings that we found in our in our building we kind of then projected onto the onto the wall on the outside um, as a kind of like a, a, a bit of a, a show and tell of, of what's coming what we're finding discovering within our building mm. and that we kind of put that on the outside of the hoarding. Well, it's wonderful to share that with um, the community, because I suppose that's a space that's been closed off for them for a little while. It has been. And when we when we came, it was um, I mean, the the post office was very well used at the nose of the building, even though it was um, perhaps slightly not very well designed for what their needs then were. And the rest of the building had been derelict for years and years. And it was you know, very uninviting reglet glass all around the facade. The whole street was kind of very unanimated. And one of the things that we really wanted to do was to bring life and animation to the street. And by kind of creating that whole facade back to what it was probably originally when it was first designed as department store in 1906, with shop fronts and curiosities displayed onto the facade so that when people walk past, there's things to look at and there's interest. In our planning, we moved the post office to a better location for them, where we designed the space especially to suit what the post office needs are currently. But then that also, by removing them from the nose of the building, we created a F&B location where more people can enjoy. We've got Canova Hall in there at the moment, and we've also managed to get a space for music. Claudia from Pure Vinyl, who was already in the arcades at Brixton. And so through our kind of early community research work and find, and meeting the locals, we met Claudia, who we really, really liked. And she had a great record store in the arcades and we offered her a place in our building. And Volcano Coffee came and they were local to the area as well. They actually had a space that they roasted coffee in, in Tulse Hill. And part of their business was really kind of growing. And they were recognize that they'd like to have a place where they can showcase their produce and also invite people in for educational tours. That was a great space for them in our building. And also we have another unit where it had been a great um, catering company called Kabula, who um, who kind of like produced not only food for us initially, but they kind of like produce really great fresh coffee and tea and sandwiches for the, for the local community as well. Yeah, so the hyperlocal, it seems more relevant than ever at the moment. I certainly feel like I've been living a hyperlocal life since March. Yes, absolutely. And I think what's been what's great about um, the hyperlocal is, is that if you're living, working and socialising and learning in this close area, you're really building in your in your community, in, in the locality that you, you work in and, and live in. And that allows local communities and businesses to really thrive because there are people who are here wanting to use their services. And for us, that's just incredibly important. Um, as, a, as a business, we always try to make sure we use our local businesses. Um, so we kind of get all our framing done locally, our printing done locally, 
Um, we, of course, as a group of people, as, as a workforce, we kind of go out and have lunches and socialise in all the kind of the, the establishment around Brixton. And um, and it's really important for us that that's, that continues, that we, we want to see the businesses around us thrive so that we have then a place that is buzzing and lively to work in. And how do you work with the local community in your capacity as a design and architecture studio? Every winter, every Christmas, we invite um, the local school's children to come in and do a design session with us um, with the view of creating um, a design for the winter windows and then through that kind of like workshop that we have with them, they learn about how to design. And these are kind of very young children. And it's probably the first time they've come to come to a design studio and they would kind of like design things. And then we would, um, the model shop team would show them how we then turn that design into a real a light. Um, so how, how you turn an idea into something that's real. And then we'd have a little competition to see who would win the, the design of the windows. And those, those winning designs would get um, made and lit up through the whole Christmas period. We also kind of support the um, slightly older students as well through programs called ReRise and Liberty. We let them use our spaces. We have a great making studio that they can come and do workshops in. And then they get talks through all the different design departments within our company. So the model shop team will give them a talk, our interiors team, the architectural team, our CGI and illustration team. So it really kind of like allows people to see into a world of design that they could, you know, one day enter into. We also through, and a lot of practices do this, we have lots of work placements, but we always make sure that whenever we do work placements, there's at least 50% of the people who come and do work placements, either in our architecture and interior design or illustration or CGI departments or model shop departments, that at least 50% of those people are lo- from the local community. That sounds brilliant. So creating the department store studios, is it a way for Squire and Partners to become even more involved in what's happening locally? Through the whole three years we've been here, we've met so many amazing people and um, and we've really enjoyed working with them, not only on our building, but actually on future projects. Um, for instance, we we met Carolina Merska um, in one of the design festivals. She came to our building and um, she really liked the aesthetic of it, the feeling of it. And, um, and she kind of like talked to us about her art, which is she creates these things called Pionkis, and they're basically a Polish traditional craft where they u- where she uses straw tissue paper to create these beautiful decorations, chandeliers. It's a traditional craft that she's kind of modernised with her colours and her materiality. That she wants to create something that is bespoke for us that would sit within our studio. And through that process of working with her, we then saw the potential of how her work can really excite and infuse into some of our work our projects for our clients and so we invited her to kind of do a piece for our ministry um, co-working space at Borough Road and that was a really great collaboration through these experiences that we see from building on relationships that we have already and finding new ones and then building those new ones into really flourishing relationships we really saw an opportunity that we can increase this even further by creating a set of studios within our site a department store studios where we can still again create that environment where there is collaboration there's an excitement there's a, a strive to create better places for all for all of us to live and work in and so really at the department store studios we see that as a, a hub for people to to work in to socialize to play in and to share ideas so what will that look like 
the the building is kind of taking um, leave from the from the mother building, the department store itself. It will be um, composed of brick. We've chosen to use CLT as our structure. It's, it's, more, it's much more environmentally friendly. We use much less concrete and steel. It's much faster to erect. And, and of course, the actual using CLT, the timber gives a real warmth to the interior of the spaces. The idea of how we've translated the concepts of the department store to the department store studio is that we share the same ethos of this honesty of materials. And so where we have the CLT, we always expose those beams and ceilings. The brickwork is very honest and it's hand laid, it's very well crafted. It's really kind of like finding the beauty in the, in the natural materials that really sings through. And that, of course, allows the architecture and interior to really resonate through together because we've got the brickwork on the outside and the inside. And the CLT is, is continuous in the ceilings and um, column structures. All studios have opening windows. They have their own control of their environment in terms of cooling and heating. There's natural light flooding throughout. We created a central staircase, which is CLT as well. So beautiful timber structure staircase, which really encourages people to kind of use the staircase instead of lift, particularly because it actually is only a four-storey building. I'd be interested to know how it felt designing this compared to the department store, given their relation and the fact that you are still your own client. We are still our own um, clients on this, but we are definitely designing for um, companies and individuals that's not Squire and Partners. But we like to understand that's how they might use the spaces. And, and, and actually, it's through how we've used our department store that we want to recreate a similar feeling of space and openness and the connectivity between different areas that people can use and enjoy. We're now at a stage where we're choosing all the furniture, beginning to create the artwork for the spaces. So we're kind of using a good range of timbers in most of our chairs and really kind of playing off the lightness of the CLT um, ceilings and columns that we'll have and the warmth of the brickwork. We've got some beautiful rugs, which Izzy is designing for us. And we're using, again, all the craftsmen and suppliers that we've worked with, not only in the department store, but throughout all our projects. And so we're, again, building on communities that we're, we've worked with already. So we're kind of like building on those, the supply chains that we've had through our business as architects and interior designers, as well as all the relationships that we've built up through the department store. For instance, we're working with a local artist, um, Azara Amoy, um, who we actually collaborated on the street gallery project in 2016 and 2017. And she's created some really great colorful graphics for our brand, which will feature in, in all our materials for marketing, but also in our kind of ongoing kind of artwork that we would produce throughout the studios. So who will be using it? So we really hope that it will be everyone from the local community. We envisage that we'll um, have a good draw of um, creative communities. Being a, a creative studio ourselves, we will probably draw a lot of creative people in. But we also see that what people might not see as creative industries, kind of like maybe accountants, lawyers, tech companies, you might not see them naturally as creative businesses, but their, their skill sets are vital to our community. 
And what we're proposing to do is that we're going to get everyone who joins into the hub, who comes to the studios, will sign a pledge that they will kind of give a certain part of their time to other people within the community. And that means the community on a wider sense, as, as well as within the studios, some of their time and their expertise to help each other in, their, in, in, in our different areas of business. We're actually going to be creating a residency programme where we're, we're going to invite two, pe- two individuals who are st- either starting up their business or um, at the early stages of a business or someone who's kind of trying to revive a business. And we'd offer them a place, a dedicated desk within the studios and a program of kind of mentoring. And I think that's that idea of mentoring and skill sharing is something that we will hold very important to the people that come to use our studios, that there is a there is definitely a giving back to the community. And the two residencies that we um, will offer, we'd kind of select them so that, you know, it's people that we as department store and also within the, the department store studio can actually help bringing something new into an area there are always going to be some people worried about the changes it will bring talk about how you engage with them and respond to any fears i think what we're good at and we strive to do always is actually be very open and honest with everybody and also listen to what what their points of views are and seeing where we can improve or where we can help and actually, it's the conversation that's that's really important and the engagement with the local community. So we knew that when we were coming in three years ago, we bought the building and we and we knew that we were coming here. We started an engagement process already. So very, very early on, we were talking with Brixton Bid about what the, you know, we knew that we wanted to create an animated street front. So we talked to them about what sort of businesses would be working here. And they're the ones who put us in touch with Volcano. And so they all, the local community already knew what what they needed and also what opportunities there would be. And us talking to them actually really helped us kind of like inform the decisions that we made. And But the process is continual. What about people who might be deciding between a workspace in central London versus something that you could describe as a hyper-local workspace? Well, I think um, it's a it's a really current kind of question and really current to debate and topics at the moment. And I think there's always a place for workplaces in central London. I think that's always going to be there. And you know, there, there'll be businesses who want to be right in the centre of town and it makes sense for them to be. But then I think there's also so many businesses who will start to question whether they do need to be in the centre of town and all the benefits of not being in the centre of town. And I think the hyper-local, the kind of more out of town, out of central, centre of cities, office spaces are really going to see a big increase in demand because it does make so much sense. If we all kind of live a closer distance to our work, we can get to work in our own steam. We don't have to get public transport. We can either walk or cycle to work. That would really ease the infrastructure, the transport infrastructure that's already hugely overcrowded. The the costs are, of course, um, a big bonus. The rent co- rental costs in central London is going to be significantly higher than anywhere out of central London or any central cities. And then businesses can really start to think, well, if we are not spending as much per square foot or square metre in, in rental, perhaps we can afford more space. And then I think that then the ability to have more space will then create environments which are less densely packed. Um, people have 
more breakout spaces in their workplaces. And I think people get a lot of enjoyment from being able to be closer to home. They can nip back home for certain things during the day or get back home early one day or you know, the, the, the range of flexibility in people's daily lives will, are significantly improved if they work closely to where they live. So I think there's a lot of really significant plus points. And I think also, I know we've talked a lot about communities, but being able to kind of know all the shop owners around you, they are small businesses probably, or even if they are in larger chain stores, they are kind of local faces that people who work there that you'd recognize daily and I think that that kind of humanization of the relationships between people are enhanced when you are um, in a focus local area. So thank you so much for everything today. Well thank you very much. Leaving the city to head into the countryside, the question of what local is changes. How local is the local shop a few miles away, if you only have your own feet to get there, along unsafe roads built for those going fast and going past, to the nearest city perhaps? To discuss the local as it relates to the countryside, in the second interview I speak to two members of the Velo City team, Sarah Featherstone and Petra Marco. With its greener vision for rural development centred on the village, Velo City won the 2017 National Infrastructure Commission's Ideas Competition, which sought inspirational visions for the Oxford-Cambridge Corridor. The team was later commissioned for the Blenheim Estate Development, which will put a number of the core Velo City ideas into practice. Sarah Featherstone is an architect and co-director of Featherstone Young, an award-winning practice in housing, placemaking and social engagement, recently awarded AJ Retrofit Winner of the Year for T. Powell, a new arts model repurposing a multi-storey car park. Sarah also teaches at Central St. Martins and Cardiff University and sits on a number of design review panels. Petra Marco is an architect, co-founder of Marco and Placemakers and director of Solid Space. Working between client-side enabling, placemaking and design advocacy, Petra has a growing profile as a younger generation leader breaking industry silos. Petra was a member of the inaugural National Infrastructure Commission Young Professionals Panel and is a think tank leader at the London School of Architecture. Here's my conversation with Sarah and Petra. So could you start by introducing Velocity and the team behind it? So Velocity is, is both the idea and the team and the six of us from Built Environment, we're architects, planners, um, an engineer, sustainability engineer. We came together back in 2017 to do an entry for a National Infrastructure Commission competition to propose new ways of growth and placemaking for the Oxford-Cambridge corridor because they need 1 million new homes by 2050. And so the competition was about, you know, what type of homes and where these homes might be and how they could contribute to improving life quality and, and delivering housing, which is which is really good for people. So that was the starting point. And, uh, but nobody was looking at villages. So uh, that was the core of our approach, looking at what's happening in rural areas. And we were, uh, because we met through cycling, we, we were also very keen to um, think about how there could be more cycling and walking in rural areas, which oftentimes are very dependent on the car. 
and also because you asked about how we pronounce uh, velocity and uh, whether it's ve velocity or velocity and, and there was partly the thing of slowing down as well so our idea of uh, introducing more cycling and walking in these rural areas was about slowing down the pace of um, moving around so if you're on a bicycle or walking then you're much more likely to talk to your neighbors or you know to meet people as you go about your daily business um, so there was something about the pace which so so there's a dual meaning um, in the name and with the NIC competition it was very much about playing the two different paces uh, together so you have the high-speed public transport and rail and bus networks that were being proposed to be brought across the arc and we were interested in how that fast speed connection could enable these dis disconnected isolated villages to be reconnected and the it's it requires you know at least one mode of transport stroke two you know the slow walking and cycling to the station to the train station to the bus station which then has the fast speed to take you elsewhere in the corridor to your workspace place um, or further afield okay brilliant i didn't realize there was that side to it as well so you met at a charity cycling event we all knew of each other. Obviously, some of us have worked together in the past. Um, and the charitable cycling event happened every year. And so probably for a couple of years, uh, we were doing that prior to the competition, uh, getting to know each other, sharing ideas as you're cycling 100 miles every day up very steep mountains. Um, and so we became quite a sort of, you know, strong group. Uh, of like-minded people that got very excited about, very passionate about certain things. Uh -huh. So now you're a group of six. Could you talk a bit about how the team works together? Well, that was always quite challenging because um, right from the start, in fact, the competition was held over the summer holidays. Uh, three of us have got children, young children. Um, we all run our own businesses, uh, you know, we're directors of our businesses. So that was a challenge in itself. We we're very keen on collaboration and, you know, the fact that we were multidisciplinary, but we had to quite quickly adapt to this idea of remote working. Some of us were on holiday with the children. Um, and as I say, we were all quite busy. So um, we had a, two or three sort of face-to-face -face meetings back in uh, that summer. Um, and I think just because we were so in tune with each other and very passionate about cycling, very passionate about working with what's there, the villages, dealing with these rural issues, one idea led to another very, very quickly. And then we all have different skills in terms of how we visualize that, how we articulated it in text and drawings and imagery. Um, and so it, it was, we surprised ourselves really at how well we all worked together um, in this very intense period over the summer holidays. And then when we got shortlisted, um, the standard way of entering competitions is to have a lead architect or a lead designer, and then everyone else is sub-consultants. And so we really turned this on its head because we have come up with a name for our idea, which was the name of our team as well. And we were very clear in terms of our communications also with the media right from the start that we are a collaborative team, which doesn't have one single lead and every one of us has different things to contribute um to the idea so that has been really successful and it's it's been picked up and it's sort of un, uh challenges the traditional model which when we were shortlisted we came into the room 
with I think there were five or four or five shortlisted teams and each of them was very traditionally in the sense that there was a lead architect and, and a couple of sub consultants. I mean they were all very male dominated. I think you know there was only one woman apart from our team on, on, on all of the other teams altogether. So that was part of it as well, you know, the the challenge of thinking about a large infrastructure strategy as, as an all female team was was another aspect to it, I suppose. Actually, it's true. It's quite startling when we walked into that room because not only were we an all-female team that sat around our little table, we also all arrived with our fold-up bikes. <laughs> I don't think I saw any other bikes in that room. So it made quite an impact. You've got quite a strong brand there. Yeah. It's true, though, you know, we... And, uh, you know, during the course of that competition, we cycled that whole area, you know, well, we focused on a particular village cluster. And really, you know, it's absolutely key to cycle these areas and really get to know them. And as Petra said earlier, by cycling and walking, you are, you know, you're slowing your pace down and you notice so much more, you know, uh, you're so much more aware of your context and what's around you. We were able to speak to people. It's much, much easier, you know, um, to have that immediate contact with um, the, the, the area and the people that are living and working there. And of course, one of the problems that we encountered as a cyclist on those rural roads is it's blooming dangerous. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me about some of the issues relating to the villagers? The countryside is, is almost untouchable. So it's very, you know, and, and the image that people have in their mind about it is very picturesque, but what's been actually happening with, you know, intensive farming practices and, and the landscape and the biodiversity uh, changing in the countryside, um, you know, um, not visible to people generally. So we were very interested in thinking about what's actually and looking at what's happening there and how people live there. And, and as Sarah said, you know, we cycled around the areas and in some villages people were apologizing that there were no children in the villages. There were just uh, elderly people. Uh, so, and, and we found that there are, you know, lots of issues um, in terms of isolation, mental health, reliance on the car and um, especially for young families uh, it's the affordability so the house the type of housing that's built uh, currently in, in rural areas is, is usually uh, sprawling between the villages along the roads with kind of quite large houses very uh, focused on cars so you know have double bay car parking and you just go to places by car so villages have lost the services they, they traditionally used to have um, so we thought there was a big untapped potential looking at villages and rural areas uh, and how to grow them differently. And this was, you know, three years ago that we tackled the theme, which is now becoming ever more relevant in, in the context of, of what's what's been happening, not only with the pandemic, but also in terms of climate emergency, just being, you know, being more in tune with food production and, and uh, living more locally, as you said in the introduction, being able to access things locally and um, be more uh, involved in, in the day-to-day -day running of, of your life, as in, you know, not just being somebody who's just going in and out of the office. And I think it's also about, um, we're very interested, you know, Petra's mentioned climate emergency, we're very interested about being light-footed and working with what is already there. And I think that was really key to us. Uh, right from the outset, 
um, you know, there was an aspect of the competition which was about placemaking. And we felt that you didn't need to create new towns or new villages necessarily um, because there were already places that existed and that's the villages. Um, and as, you know, and as Petra has pointed out, villages, you know, uh, uh, are suffering from lots of issues. Um, and so we wanted to work with the villages, work with what was there and, mm. um, and reinvigorate them. How would you do that? The important thing was that you couldn't you couldn't um, reinvigorate one village on their own. You needed, we felt you needed to relink a cluster of villages and they quite naturally cluster with bridleways and old footpaths that connect them. Um, and as a cluster, they can grow up their population to be able to support the local school, bring back pubs, bring back post office, bring back schools, um, bring back uh, shops. Um, and um, so that was important for us. You had to think of it not as one on their own, but as a cluster. Do you get these village clusters that still have connections? Well, naturally, um, it's interesting. Naturally, villages often do cluster it might be around churches the vicar that has his parish might have five or six villages village churches within his parish so there often are connections and of course historically people would have walked between the two and the school might have been in one and the the doctor mm -hmm. might have been in another um but i don't think many people are thinking about it that way right now I, I tend to feel that we see people just looking at a settlement, you know, it might be a town, a village, in isolation and how you grow that to a certain size. Uh, and that precludes really looking at these villages and keeping them, you know, at this kind of particular scale that they have um, and making them more kind of like, as we talk about the sharing economy, being more aware of what mm -hmm. each of you can offer, not just as individuals, but as a village supporting another village. And I think all of that is really important. And it's something that, again, that we've been seeing happening over this COVID period, this kind of reliance on more local services and providers and things that are on your doorstep. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, especially with the issue of um, if you just jump into your car, then it's much more likely you're going to drive to the nearest town or city rather than mm -hmm. just to, to the nearest village. So the idea of, of the cluster falls apart if everyone's uh, primary mode of moving around is is the car so so with introducing these alternative ways of moving around you're making it much more easier and convenient for people to access these local services in the next door village could you go into more detail about what it would be like to live in one of these villages right from the outset have created some really quite nice you know everything is very visually presented um, I, I expect you've seen some of the drawings that we do where we try to bring to life what these villages and places might feel and look like. Um, uh, and we've done little drawings that uh, look at both the village cluster with its big back garden and the ability to have allotments and food production on the edges of the big back garden and then perhaps some kind of community leisure facility in the middle and some kind of wildlife corridor in the halfway ring. Um, but we also have drawings that describe how the existing historic core of a village with the church and, and, and the workers' cottages and the manor house, how you begin to look and the village green, how you begin to look at the field patterns that surround them um, and how you can perhaps work with the scale of the field patterns, the hedges, the ancient woodland, um, because, of course, the landscape is, is really quite key here. Um, in terms of um, the character and place of the villages and what makes them quite special and how they sit there in the landscape. So um, 
we try to convey that both in our drawings and in the whole way we approach it that you know any new housing is sympathetic to the topography to the to the landscape and and to the setting of many listed buildings in these villages um and uh, the idea is is that we keep it compact where you know so that the uh, outdoor space is the countryside around you uh, you know the big back garden is this area of countryside that's free of development um, and that the inner core of the village uh, over time becomes completely car free. People are walking, perhaps cycling uh, around the village. There's uh, some of the old barns because there's often barns and farms completely within the center of a village. Villages tend to build up around some, some, some villages are built up around farms. That, um, you know, there's ability not just to create new housing, but to work with some of the existing buildings, bring fresh life into them, use the barns perhaps for delivery depots, for transfer of goods that might have come in on an electric vehicle to then to be dispersed by uh, cargo bikes around the village. Um, might be a place where you have the bike shares or, or in the short term, the electric car shares and the charging. Um, so you've got all these things on your doorstep um, and uh, you have this kind of core of the village that's just free of um, any kind of fast vehicle movement, free of pollution. What we find um, is an advantage in terms of social ties and networks in villages is that the critical mass of people there is that you can easily form um, relationships and social ties and and have a sense of community and so we are bringing these ideas into master planning the big back garden is essentially the landscape between a cluster of villages and so the idea is that this is um, collectively uh, accessed and used by all those villages and that each big back garden um, of each village cluster could have a different focus depending on what the people's needs are in that particular village cluster so it could be a very um a very engaged and sort of participatory space but what's important with the big bear garden is that it's free of development in, in perpetuity so it's protected landscape with only sort of like temporary events and, and access for people to do you know markets or um activities and growing food on a smaller or even larger scale sort of locally um orchards etc uh, so, so all of these ideas are very applicable to master planning. And what we see in large-scale master planning um, is that often uh, it's uh, it's one of the large house builders who will be leading on the master plan, appointing the master planning architect, mm -hmm. and then um, very quickly that um, land is parceled up, uh, divided with roads. And it's a very, very um, kind of business-as-usual way of, um, developing new housing so there isn't enough thinking about how to make those new neighborhoods car free or taking cars to the edges. And one of your reports mentions a low-cost high-speed data network. Could you tell me about that? The principle is that um, at the moment uh, even in cities like in London you don't have a good 5G connectivity everywhere but uh, increasingly, especially with home-based working, uh, you know, having good internet connection is paramount to having... So, so in Dent, they had um, this local um, Wi-Fi network. Um, it was really important for those people who were moving into Dent to be able to have good um, internet connectivity. And so with the Velocity strategy, um, 
reviving those bridal ways and pathways to use them as psychopaths. It is really low cost and easy to lay down um, high speed data cabling underneath this psychopath. So you're not taking out concrete to, to put in the cabling. You're, you're working uh, with the kind of semi soft, you know, uh, surfaces. And it's so, so therefore it's really easy to put those that cabling in and it's really easy to make those places really well connected. We've always said from the start, another big advantage of our strategy is that because we're not creating a new town or a new, you know, a new place, a new settlement, you don't have to spend all that money and infrastructure up front that is so often required. And that infrastructure isn't just roads, it's, it's all the services that we're talking about because they're already there. Um, uh, uh, and in addition, as Petra's saying, you know, if you do need your um, uh, internet cabling, et cetera, et cetera, it can easily be accommodated under the very low cost upgrades that we're needing to make to the existing cycle routes of bridleways and footpaths so um, it's technology can be easily incorporated and there's also because we're in the countryside there's an awful lot of space um, to be able to also supplement it mm. with wind farms and um, solar you know photo photovoltaic fields you know there's it makes it a much more low-cost proposition because it's so much easier to install all this infrastructure and technology could we talk about your Blenheim Estate project? To what extent does it align with the core Velocity vision? You know, there are some, you know, quite interesting statistics about um, how 37% of our land is owned by landed estates, arist aristocrats with big, you know, country estates. Um, and so I think um, it, us focusing on some of these big landed estates is, is quite an interesting way forward. Um, we were fortunately introduced to Blenheim via um, Richard Gibbs, I think, who was um, the director at Here East. He, he, he mentioned us to Oxford University, who then, who also owned quite a lot of land, who felt that Blenheim Estate is one of these landed estates that was really, you know, wanting to think differently about the way they're doing things. Um, they were thinking about legacy. They're thinking about, you know, what, their responsibility, their stewardship um, in the future moving forward. Um, and um, I think a lot of these um, landed estates um, all talk to each other uh, and share ideas about how to do things differently. Um, and Blenheim, I think, along with others, are keen to be leading that, leading the way. Um, and so it was quite timely, really. Um, when they were introduced to us because, um, uh, you know, our strategy does tackle a whole range of um, uh, different aspects of land management, um, you know, uh, as well as um, uh, selling off land, you know, in the past, uh, you know, a lot of these landed estates have been selling off their land uh, for any kind of how to any kind of the highest bidder to put housing on it. Uh, and I think, um uh, increasingly realizing this isn't really the way forward and we're seeing lots of the countryside just being built on and swathes of housing in, in the wrong places so Blenheim were very very keen to sort of rethink the way they did development rethink the way they looked after their land and work much much more closely with the villages um, that surround um, their estate and their palace and actually when we first uh, um, were introduced to them and started looking at how scalability, what the scalability of our proposition, our village clusters to their area might be. It, it, it was almost extraordinary that um, our kind of 
rule of thumb of seven miles to a station, looking at villages that have that proximity to a train station um, and the natural um, sort of two, two mile distances between villages. It, it almost completely um, it was the same, you know, the village cluster we've been studying along the Octocam corridor was almost totally equivalent to um, the five or six villages that surround Blenheim Palace and the, uh, and the big park. Um, and, um, the, the, and and you can you could almost immediately see what the problem one of the problems was, which was that all the road networks um, that link the villages are pushed around the edge of the park, and hence they get very very congested because the park is effectively our big back garden, and that's where all the sort of pathways and bridleways can crisscross and link villages. So if you could open up. And this is, you know, again, this is a long term strategy because it's quite sensitive. But if you are able to open up some of the um, paths and bridleways that crisscross the park um, uh, to cycling and walking and to the to the locals, then you've immediately uh, offering this alternative way of um, uh, connecting villages uh, and alleviating car pressure on the roads. I mean, land ownership is definitely um, an issue. And so... Um... It's really difficult to unlock um, land, especially within villages. And uh, so with the Blenheim strategy that we're working on, um, it's enabled through the fact that Blenheim estates are um, a landed estate and, and the owners of a number of a series of villages and the Blenheim Palace. So that makes piloting our strategy easier if you take the land ownership out of the equation if there's a single landowner uh, because it's always very contentious if you're doing development in villages individual small plots and you still get a lot of nimbism in cities and, and in rural areas probably even more so but then what's happening currently is that land is allocated because this is really complex and you have to have that participatory process and conversation and consultation what's happening is that land is being allocated outside of villages so you're creating effectively like an appendix or a, a sort of like uh, a sub-development to a village and you automatically create this new different community that doesn't integrate with the existing village community so it's this suddenly you know you've got a big development of a couple of hundred homes near a village or a cluster of villages, but, but this development has no relationship to the existing uh, grain of the villages and, and also the people, once they move in, you know, there isn't a sense of um, having a relationship with the existing community and and we feel this is not the right way of doing it, but, but our strategy is in the current planning context difficult to implement. But it also, and it comes back to that you know what what Petra's describing is people grow is people creating villages or growing villages with these large uh, developments on the edge so that they on their own can support the school you know they so the the school or the medical center um and i think that is a problem because that's taking the scale of these villages to a sort of town context which which you know is destroying the character of our countryside um I think it's also interesting that uh, in the work that we're doing with Blenheim uh, Estate, uh, we have had lots of conversations with the local authorities and the planning departments. And um, as they're thinking about writing their, their future plans, local plans for 2030, 
um, they are beginning to come around to the idea that they do need to look at villages, that they have run out of land around towns. There is no good. They've used all the good and bad land around towns to build more housing and there isn't any left anymore. Um, so what are the alternatives? What? How else can they accommodate more housing um, and deal with um, the, it, the concerns around uh, road congestion, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, and I think they're very open to the idea that the, that this more dispersed uh, approach, i.e., you know, you're growing, you're you're building in a number of different settlements and then linking them together by cycling and walking, it's quite an interesting uh, concept for them and one that seems to be being quite well received. Um, and they're giving us platforms in which to be able to um, uh, present that idea and invite people to comment. It sounds like Velo City is already very active on the project. What stage are you at now? There's some very interesting pilot schemes that are now coming out of our strategy, because obviously our strategy is, is, is sort of very multi-layered. It's quite complex. It's something that's going to happen over 30 years. It was, it's not a strategy that happens overnight. It's, it is, as Petra says, a big mind shift, not just for the people that live in these uh, villages and in the countryside, but also you know, for the, the changes required to planning policy. Um, so it's sort of small steps on one level and at grassroots, sort of ground level, and then there's some sort of more strategic high uh, level uh, changes that need to happen. But some of the small steps that are, we're taking um, and piloting with Blenheim include, for example, as a result of um, the lockdown and COVID, um, the school bus service has been um, has had to hugely uh, reduce its service, uh, which arguably therefore has been meant children might be pushed into cars or the parents driving them to their school. But um, as a result of some of the work we've been doing, Blenheim, you know, residents have, have, have heard that, you know, there is a sort of openness to opening up more cycle routes. So they've approached us in Blenheim uh, to open up a cycle route across the park, the palace and the park, um, which is a much, much quicker way to get children on from the two villages on the western side of the park across to the secondary school in Woodstock on the eastern side. Um, this started off as a sort of two-week pilot scheme a few weeks ago. When we won the competition back in 2017, we didn't sort of stop. I mean, it was an ideas competition, but um, which meant that it wasn't leading to, to a commission immediately. And... Um, because it's a really complex strategy and it's not immediately implementable uh, it has taken us quite a long time but we've been very very active in just talking about the idea and developing it further in in the next two years after the competition so we actually we were able to uh, win some research funding um, and and to visit some case studies um, to look at higher density typologies in rural settings and this included sort of historic villages where they were walkable like dens um, in Yorkshire Dales uh, but we also um, won the William Sutton Prize for social housing design and placemaking which was another um, uh, another pot of funding for us to really um, alleviate some of the more technical questions that potential clients had and, and to really look at the strategy uh, in a more fine-grained um, way. So so this was really important for for us to be able to keep on going as a team um, 
and to approach potential partners and to have those conversations and those presentations attend to all the conferences. And last year we took part in the um, Oslo Architecture Triennale where we launched our manifesto. So, so all of that was a process of developing the idea uh, further after we won the competition and uh, that has led to eventually um, coming into partnership with Blenheim as, as our first client to pilot this really. And there's, there's other potential projects um, in the pipeline for us, but um, it just shows that it really takes time and a lot of effort to get something at this scale um, to reality. And yeah, so it's very exciting this year for us to be moving towards that. So what's next for Velocity? We're already, you know, example of a, of a good collaboration, but we want to uh, we want to extend that wider. So um, wherever possible, um, and as Petra says, there's a number of things we've been participating in where there's other like-minded people who are also looking at rural issues. Um, we did. Uh, Petra and I uh, did a lecture, or we were invited to do a talk at the RIBA on the back of the research that we we had done for them or done mm -hmm. with the, the money they'd given us. Um, and we were very keen to make sure that that wasn't just us talking about this. And so we invited other um, people that we know are quite active in um, looking at and tackling rural issues. So Hannah Loftus, for example, um, who has her own practice mm -hmm. hat projects, has worked very, um, has been working with public practice and looking at how uh, the planning, um, the role of planning uh, in these rural communities can play a larger part in how people can have a more of a voice. And then we also invited Meredith Bowles from Moll, who, as we know, um, uh, is based uh, out in Cambridge. And he also has a number of projects which are, are rural based and or looking at ways of which communities can um, pull together and work together. Marmalade Lane is a good example of that um, and, and being car free. Uh, so we've been talking for some time uh, and still yet to pull us off to sort of try and have an, a, a pull together a conference or something at some point quite soon, which um, extends this, you know, extends the dialogue and invites people to really look at um, look at the countryside more. I, I still think people are very mm. urban centric when we try to raise sometimes, you know, when you're with groups uh, um, within a group or organisation and we're talking about ideas for future debates or, or discussions they tend to be so urban centric and people are, 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 I even remember somebody saying to me, but, you know, we were talking about placemaking. They said, is the countryside a place? Um, so yeah. there's a sort of, you know, I still feel despite um, all the things that are happening right now, there's still some people that, um, are, you know, are, are, are keeping, you know, are much more interested in, in, in models and typologies and the way in which we live in cities. Um, I mean, interestingly, yeah. I don't know. Um, interestingly, it was Rem Coolhouse who, um, February this year, yes. um, opened up the exhibition at the Guggenheim called The Countryside. And that was very much about mm -hmm. a provocation of, you look, you know, this is constitutes 90, 97% of the land in this, in this, in this world. Um, what's going on here? You know, we should be looking more closely at this. And so it's a, a complete interrogation, I think, investigation rather, of, of all the things that are happening in the countryside that is almost invisible. Um, and unfortunately, that exhibition probably hasn't had as much airplay as it should because it went in, we went into lockdown shortly after it opened. Beyond that, are there specific projects you want to work on? I think the big thing 
it's just, just turning planning on its head. I think you know that there's got to be significant change in planning policy in order to see this strategy, uh, you know, to see our strategy move forward in the long term. Um, but it's also, you know, it's also people's perception. It's also, you know, working around people's resistance to. We've sometimes referred to our proposition as the modern day picturesque or reimagining um, the future of our village. We're very, very mm -hmm. aware that uh, people have this quintessential, uh, I, you know, see our villages as quintessentially beautiful. Um, and um, there will be, you know, the idea of building within villages is, is possibly something a lot of people might initially feel is, um, is, is an unacceptable concept. But again, when you start talking to people and when you listen to the concerns and problems and issues that people have living in these villages, it can very, you know, the solutions very, very quickly turn to this idea that, you know, you need to sort of be less car dependent in order to keep, you know, to make the streets safe for your children. You need to have more housing that is affordable in order to keep young, to attract young people there and keep your schools open. And so, uh, you know, quite quickly, uh, a lot of what Villa City offers uh, actually tackles those issues and those problems. Okay, brilliant. So thank you so much for speaking to me. Great, well, thank you. Good to meet you online. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks, Sophie. As my guests and their projects show, designing for local living and working is relevant both to our immediate concerns in the wake of the pandemic, as well as to longer term goals concerning well-being and environmental impact. The two interviews discuss responses of different scales, one for a shared workplace and the other for a regional master plan, but are both concerned with how design can help people connect with and contribute to their local environments. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Talking Spaces, a podcast from FX magazine. We hope you enjoyed this episode close to home, though hopefully we'll be venturing a little further in real life by the time we record our next one. Thank you again to Maria, Sarah and Petra for their time and conversation. And thank you to Lee Endress for the editing and music for this FX podcast. If you want to find out more about FX, find us on Twitter or Instagram at fxdesignmag or on the website designcurial.com where we have all our recent articles. If you would like to hear more of this series, you can listen and subscribe on the usual platforms.